the name of justice, in the name of peace. But will this killing and fighting ever cease? People ripping off their fellow man, doing everything wrong, everything they can. Why they want to harm the man? Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Company on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone so you can stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today on this beautiful Saturday. And um, it just popped into my head the other day as I um, continue my work on a, um, a book that's dedicated to, uh, in part, the uh, the original Merry Pranksters, that uh, one of the cats that I haven't talked to yet uh, is a decorated guitarist uh, who was fully ensconced in the, the Los Angeles Hollywood studio scenes in the uh, 60s and 70s coming out of the psychedelic folk era. He was a decorated original uh, creative composer and uh, a leader in his own right and also worked with the Smothers Brothers uh, where he became very close with Mason Williams and uh, when uh, Ken Kesey came along and they put together this um, sort of multi-sensory theatrical performance, play-like performance with music called Of Time and Rivers Flowing, uh, my guest was uh, the guitarist on uh, on those sessions and did road work and um, quite honestly, uh, the guy has a really deep bag of tunes, and uh, it's all music. Rick Cuna, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you, Jake. It's a pleasure being here. It's such an honor to talk to you. You know, I, I wanted to know, uh, this is kind of off in left field, but uh, we let in with, uh, I can't stop listening to this this soundtrack by Barry White, and uh you know, that guy was walking around Hollywood. He was homeless for a while before he got in the studios. Did, did, did you ever cross paths with Barry? Uh, no, no, I never did. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, let's just get down to it, man. I mean, when you were coming up, um, you know, I, I, at 41, I, I've, I subscribed to the, to the Duke Ellington uh, School of Music. It's all music. And then the subjective part is that it's either good or bad. And I am curious about your philosophy as it relates to music and when you were coming up, whether labels um, were as pervasive as they are today. Well, um, labels were awfully important back then. They were, they were the only ways to get records done. And, um, you know, getting a record contract was a lot easier back then than it would be today with a label, but, you know, I don't know that there's much of a difference in the overall output of uh, the quality or, you know, sound of music. Yeah, no, I didn't mean record labels. I meant, I should have said genres of music. Were they as pervasive? Meaning, I mean, you ask somebody what jazz is today, Rick, you get 20 different answers. Um, you know, the point is that, uh, you know, Louis Armstrong said, hey, you know what, uh, I can't describe jazz, but I know it when I hear it. And so as it relates to folk rock, psych rock, psychedelic folk, rock and roll, were label not, not record labels. Record labels drove consciousness through, you're exactly right about that. I'm talking about genres, labeling of music itself. 
when you came up, did you feel like it was less restricted than it is today as far as labeling, oh, that's this, oh, that's this, that kind of stuff? That's what I mean. Well, there were, there were labels then, too. So, you know, I think, uh, I think the labeling is going to stick with us. And uh, for me, you know, I kind of grew up in a country music uh pop music, folk music world, and uh, didn't really stray too far from from that. Um, I guess were you were you an autodidact? I mean, did did, did you learn music by ear? Uh, yes, I did. I you know actually went to school. At about, you know, when I was about 40, and uh, actually studied it then. But uh, up to then, I was, I'd been, uh, well, I can't say I was self-taught because I had a steel guitar teacher um, when I was about 10 years old, and that was Ernie Ball. Wow, steel guitar. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but you weren't part of the the academy. I mean, they're they're turning out droids today. Not that these cats don't have monster chops or facility, but man, I mean, you were not going to one of these. In any event, the schools that did exist at that time, North Texas State Berkeley School of Music. Not like Cuna was trying to be Kenny Burrell or something. But the point is that those cats had as much experiential learning as they did in the classroom. And today it's all classroom. Anyway, I didn't mean to cut you. So you had, you had some lessons, but you weren't part of the academy. No, 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 I wasn't. I wasn't formally trained at all. Did you um, tend to um, put on the radio and listen to all types of music and try to learn every song and every key. I mean, I'm curious about how your ears grew the most when you were younger, because this is a very important point, because younger cats, uh, they're learning to read by sight now, so their ears get locked. You, Your generation, just because of the fact that, let's face it, rock was still a burgeoning label, uh, I hate labels, but rock was still a, a relatively new term, um, uh, uh, so a lot of genres of music, funk, funk wasn't even part of the lexicon. Um, so the point is that you guys learn by ear. And that, to me, your ears were huge. I mean, you could really pick up on stuff, and you, you could create your own tunings, and you could hear stuff that a lot of modern-day cats, unless they're really on the bandstand a lot, which is hard because there's not a lot of gigs anymore, uh, your, ears grew, your, your ears were huge. Can you talk about how your ears grew as, as a kid? Well, I hope they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, you know what I'm getting at, though, right? I mean, you weren't sight reading and just playing what's on the paper. You, were pl- right. you had to play what you heard, and that's the difference. Yeah, when I started doing studio work, though, I mean, you, you had to go with the paper, so... Um, but... Yeah, I just uh, learned stuff, learned stuff from the radio and uh, records. Stuff, you know, the, kind of that way. 
So um, can you talk about, I mean, you, you, what, what were some of the, some of the, some of the cats that you were getting off on uh, growing up? I mean, what, what were some of the music, some of the bands you were, in, you were interested in? Well, I loved uh, some of the guitar players, um, some of the steel players. Uh, Ernie was a great steel player. Ernie Ball. Yeah. What about the cats in the like, um, like uh, like Lloyd Green? Were you fast? I mean, were those cats on the map? I mean, as far as like records, would you get like records from Nashville and sort of? Be looking at the accompanists. Uh, you know who who were who were some of the other cats that that you were really you know trying to channel. Well, I I really didn't. I wasn't uh, trying to channel anybody back then. With the you know, with some exceptions, I would. I really loved the Carter family, for example. Um, Why is that? Just I, I loved the songs, the uh, the storytelling of country music, and the, you know the Carter family was kind of the beginning of that. So that's I would say they probably got me into into that aspect of music more than anybody else. But um, you know through through that, looking at that, I heard a lot of other stuff. So, you know, also it's been so long, brain is capable of remembering. Well, you're doing a great job, and and this is part of the. And this is not about preservation, Rick. This is about promotion for future generations and their understanding of how real music is made. Um, you talk about the stories of of country music, um, the Carter family, just for the layperson who's listening around the world, were they speaking about uh, Western Hemisphere country music, uh, more specifically the United States? Was that, I mean, I'm not really hip to them. Were they, were they, were they? Were yeah, they... yeah. They, they were a, a country band in the 19, kind of the end of the 1920s. And uh, they sort of showed the RCA Victor the way to make money selling records to you know some of the country folks and uh, all the most of the material was um, older songs from uh, Ireland and England and you know just variations of folk music and, uh, but they, you, what you're saying is they were from the old world, though they were not from the state. They're from because I, I want to read you this 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 quote that uh, it's a great engineer up in the Bay Area um, and a musician, Dan Healy, and uh, he was uh, most notably the engineer for the Grateful Dead. But this is what he was talking about: is that he said folk music was inspired to my generation by the Kingston Trio. They were the first group that really delved into world music. Back in those days, they caught a lot of flack for it because it was outside of the ordinary. Dave Gard traveled the world studying different cultures' music. He brought it back. Look at all the Kingston Trio songs. Most of them are based on some foreign land. It was really the storytelling part of the Kingston Trio that made it the folk music thing. They were all stories of folk tales, but they were folk tales from everywhere but America. 
<laughs> right? You dig? I mean, can you talk a little bit about some of these, A couple, even one song that was inspiring to you? I mean, this is really important to me um, uh, just because of the fact that, um, you know, there's a lineage to all this stuff. It's just fascinating. Yeah, well, the Kingston Trio were the the pop forefront of a, a movement towards old, you know, towards old folk music. And uh, it was a kind of the Pete Seegers and uh, some of the old, older artists of the day. And uh, they brought it to the forefront and people liked it. So, you know, the record Tom Dooley, which came out in, what was it, 1958, I believe. Wow. So what, now, what did, the, now, so that, 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 can you riff on Dooley a little bit? What was salient? Was that a protest tune? No, it was just a, a, uh, an old, kind of a old-timey song about uh, a guy dying at the, you know, being hung. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I love the Kingston Trio as a, as a young person because of their just chutzpah in, in going all these different places and, uh, you know, coming up with all these interesting story songs that that we were losing at that time. You know, that if you go back to the 50s, most of the music you would hear had some kind of a story to it. And uh, rock and roll sort of, you know, clouded that story up a little bit and here were the Kingston Trio out singing these old uh, old stories that somebody else had written many, many years ago. So, When you say clouded up, because they were talking about, I lost my baby, I love my, my baby, like it was kind of superficial lyrics or, I mean, what, I mean, and, and who... The lineage before that was the Seegers or, um, you know, uh, you know, I mean, Bill Monroe, country, you know, bluegrass. Is that, explain how rock and roll clouded that, though, that lineage of, of, well, of storytelling. you know, it was, if you go back to the 40s and 50s and listen to pop songs, um, uh, let's think of one maybe you belong to me right there's a good one okay you know just a, a, a song that had a beginning and an end and told a little story with a nice melody and uh, pop music just kind of made a little detour in the 50s from that and uh for me, the folk music of the '60s replaced it. So interesting. I mean, you're talking about uh, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Elvis kind of cats, or is there other people in the pop '50s? I'm, you know, the '50s to me is Stan Getz, Sonny Stitt, and Dizzy Gillespie. You know, just uh, ripping. Uh, but what? Uh, 
what was the bop? What was the uh, pop uh, element to it? Uh, the, the cats that I mentioned, the, the R&B rock cats. Well, just you know, for me, it was just pop music at the time. Right, and right. Well, what was that pop music? music. <laughs> I was I was well before I was conceived. Uh, well, you know, you're talking Elvis and mm-hmm. um, who else? I'm stretching you out. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, yeah, I mean, but it was, but I guess my, my point is that they were coming at it from a more, uh, I don't want to say superficial, but more shaking the, Chuck Berry maybe? Chuck Berry was in there too? Well, you know, Chuck was part of that era, absolutely. And, uh you know, for the most part, he and Elvis were still hanging on to the uh, story songs, but just, you know, putting them to a different beat. But there was a, you know, kind of pop music was awash with, um, I don't know what you'd call it, a kind of a, kind of a whitewash of stuff. <laughs> that is fascinating. Wait, this I, is unbelievable. I mean, because, you know, it, it's funny. I interview Johnny Cash, definitely not more country uh, than than that, anything else, but I remember interviewing his drummer, W.S. Holland, <laughs> and that dude said that at, at Sun Records, uh, the worse musician you were, the better off you were in, to get in. They, they didn't They wanted skiffle players. You know, they they wanted cats that didn't really know how to play, except obviously there was there was a couple of amazingly accomplished guitar players. But I I'm curious about the I, I mean, did you when you when you sort of go into the um, milieu of early '60s folk, and then when people plugged in. And the Beatles came in 65 and the British invasion and that kind of stuff. And you had a lot of people who might have had, you know, sort of uh, intangible gifts, ability to have like a good inner time feel. But they weren't really professional musicians. They weren't really musicians. Um, was Was that when you kind of got on board? Not that you weren't a musician, but that you were basically marinating and in folk clubs and, and, and places where people just were, I mean, for lack of a better word, they were kind of skiffling. I mean, they were just, you know, learning on the bandstand. Well, that's kind of how it was. Yeah. There was, we had a, I had a duo where I played guitar and, uh, my partner, David played auto harp. And uh, wow. we did we did folk music in uh, Hawaii back in the, like sixty three sixty four, and uh, that was the beginning for me, you know. And I could make fifteen bucks a night at a club, and it that was you know that was a whole day's wage for anything else so kind of showed me the way <laughs> but were you guys so, i mean is it fair to say that you were kind of working it out on the bandstand working out tunes on the bandstand and you were still getting paid for it it wasn't like a formula trip where you were just playing the same song the same way every night 
did our homework and learned, you know, would try to learn a new song every day. And uh, it was it was great fun. Um, I'm looking here. Uh, you know, I've interviewed Lester Chambers, Barry Melton, Taj Mahal, um, so many of these guys, uh, Jim Queskin, and here it is, Rick Cuna, Hearts and Flowers, Bernie Ledden, Larry Murray, Dave Dawson, Rick Cuna. When did that band come together? Um, Hearts and Flowers came together in, what was it, 65? Oh, man. So you had come back from Hawaii at that point. And yeah, I had, I had come back, and then uh, my partner, David, came back. Dave Dawson? Yeah, David Is he still Dawson. with us, by the way? Yes, he is. Oh, great. He lives out in New Mexico. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, continue. So Dawson and you were marinating on the, in the beautiful islands of Hawaii, and then you came back to L.A. Continue. Yeah, and we met uh, Larry Murray. Larry was running the Hootenannies at the Troubadour on Monday nights, so that was a meeting place for people back then, and uh, David and I played and uh, got together with Larry and started a trio, and that was Hearts and Flowers. Um, would you, so let's see, that was... Really, I mean, looking at it, there was no percussive instruments. There was no rhythm section, right? I mean, you you were it was guitars, auto harp, and vocals. Yeah, yeah. We had a bass player that we uh, added, Terry Paul. Was he a washtub bass player? Or, I mean, what? no, no. He was upright. He played electric. I oh, played electric. Yeah. Wow. And. Uh, then we had a drummer oh, <laughs> after boy. our when we went out to we did a record for Capitol. You did. And, mm -hmm. Oh boy! I need to know who the drummer was. It Blaine? No, <laughs> Hal didn't. <laughs> Hal didn't play yeah. on that. Um, oh, what, what was his name? Really good black drummer. Earl Palmer, maybe. Yeah, Earl Palmer. Palmer played. And, are you kidding me? That is yeah, Earl, sick. Earl played and uh, Toxie French played. They were, you know, they were great sessions. And we had a, I think a twenty-two piece <laughs> session are at you one time. What? Wait, hold on for a second. I just want to be clear about something. It mentions Bern, the mercurial Bernie Ledden. How did he find his way into this? Well, Bernie was a friend of Larry's, and in 1968, I just uh, I kind of got tired of the group and was going to go to uh, Europe. And... Uh, Larry said, well, we'll get Bernie out to take your place. So Bernie came out and stayed with me for a couple of weeks, and I showed him my parts. And then he took over from uh, from my standpoint in the group. So that's how 
that's how Bernie got in there. When you, um, uh, I mean, this actually, Hearts and Flowers, I don't know how many albums you made, but this now is the time for Hearts and Flowers. This is June of 1967. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you're, you're doing Donovan covers and Tim Harden covers and Carol King covers. Um, but was that your first time in, in the studios? Um, well, it was the, we had done a round of recording before that. Um, you had? Yeah, with, uh, another producer with Gary Usher. Wow. And that was, that was a very convoluted deal. And we, in fact, released and nobody could find it so um, but the capital sessions were you know my first real professional studio experience and it was it was it was great um, well you know let's let's put this piece of music in here for uh, Rick Kuhn and we're so blessed to have him on the program and then we'll come back and break it down <laughs> on the Jake Feinberg Show, brought to you by Abbott Taylor Jewelers, Craig Pretzinger of Allstate Insurance, and Dr. Butch Diggs of Diggs Dental, and 
can't thank them enough for uh, allowing us to play songs like that for the incredible Rick Cuna. One, two, three, rhyme and carnivore time, T H Y M E. So you were really feeling your you were really feeling your oats at that time, my friend. Yeah, yeah, that was. We we all got to do an original song on the album, so that one was mine. When you think about germs for a song, I mean, I just on a more macro level. Um, a lot of people have different styles of writing or they have bursts of inspiration or, but ultimately what was the germ for one, two, three for you? Where, where did that come from? Uh, it was, uh, I was listening to Charles Aznavour. Right. At the time. And he had a, just a, and Willie Nelson too. You know, Willie was a writer who went to different places in his early in his early writings and uh, so that's I guess that's where that came from what do you mean he went to different places in his early writing well lyrically he didn't take the you know uh, he had a song out back then called one in a row one in a row and it was you know just a <laughs> it was lyrically totally un pop and you know made very little sense unless you read the whole you know the whole thing and it was uh, I don't know it was just interesting to me and I've always taken a kind of a left field look at lyrics and that's I love that because my whole show is way out in left field and I just when you say left field I mean is there a way to with prose that you can talk about um, the sort of the way that you would um, sort of the way you would uh, construct lines that were not authentic to you but not mainstream or commercial Oh gee, is I I don't know if I can I don't know if I can think of anything I've written that Well like on Cunatune, Cunatunes, Cunatunes. I mean that's devoted you know those those are your t- I'm not saying I'm just saying in general when you say a word like left, like Tim Buckley to me is left field not uh, uh, in the sense of his he had the folk aesthetic. Uh, Joni Mitchell was left field just because of her open tunings. So well, how was Rick Cuna left field? Well, I don't know, just lyrically, I would say. Um, yeah, that's about it. I think that's as far out in left field as I got. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember um, uh, when Dylan... Uh, or was there any uh, sort of? Do you remember when when he plugged in? When he not just plugged in, but he had a trap drummer at Newport. Was there any ripple? Do you remember when you first started using a trap drummer? I mean, for in the folk setting for so long, there were no uh, traps. So basically, you had to have really good inner time feel. Everybody had to rely on their own inner time feel. And uh, yeah. and I, I mean, like what was the transition on the west coast to when you to when the drummer became a mainstay 
even in live settings because I don't know you played the troubadour but I mean I've interviewed David Lindley a bunch of times uh Jim Queskin I mean those cats are playing at the uh, the cats pajamas in Arcadia and the Ash Grove and so I know you were rolling around all these different clubs and I don't think you had a trap drummer but did you do you remember when you first when that started to assimilate because I think Albert Grossman and Dylan almost came to blows over that <laughs> well we had a drummer with uh hearts and flowers in our you know in the second half of our careers our short careers and uh there were five of us you know and uh but that you know country music typically had a drummer um some of the bluegrass that we played and uh, old-timey music didn't and that that would have been the bill monroe uh style of music with banjos and fiddles and mandolins well let's get into let's talk about that for a minute i mean when when did you what was your bluegrass outfit was it with dawson and, and murray in these casts yeah that was our that was kind of our beginning really yeah we we just loved the love bluegrass love country music and uh we're trying to move it into a more more modern place you know so that was our first album did you get a chance to to hang with any of these original masters like uh scotty stoneman or bill monroe or i mean because those guys were so accessible and so beautiful such beautiful people they were pretty hard on their on their on their cats but i mean they <laughs> i mean they, they they they'd stop and drop some knowledge on people i mean did you get a chance to hang with these guys well to some degree yes we played shows with uh Um, well, Earl Scruggs, for example. I knew Earl pretty well. You knew Earl Scruggs? Mm-hmm. Wow. So, what, I mean, how did that... He just would roll into the Troubadour, or, or you'd open for him? How did that... So, Hearts and Flower, or did you meet him on tour, or how did that work? Well, we actually opened for Flat and Scruggs at the Troubadour in... Must have been 1966. Wow as a trio or just the three of us and uh, then uh, Earl had left Lester Flat and started a band with his children called the Earl Scruggs Root when I started playing by myself after leaving Hearts and Flowers I would open shows for them when they came out here. So that was my way of getting around Earl. Wait, so you would would you open with your own band or just solo uh, guitar vocal? Just solo. Wow. Or, you know, sometimes I'd bring a fiddler. I'd been playing with Mason Williams oh. back then, and uh, Mason had a 
a good fiddler from North Carolina, Bill Cunningham. Bill Cunningham, unbelievable. And, and Bill, Bill would play with me, and uh, I'd take I'd, whoever was close <laughs> would play with me. <laughs> I mean, it's it was such a hot. I, Southern California was a hotbed of this bluegrass and country Americana music at one time that you were coming up in. Um, did you know the pedal steel player, Bill Keith? Uh, by name, yes. I didn't, I didn't really know him. He, I met him once. But. He, he, he told a great story to me in one of our radio interviews about um, playing, uh, well, you know, because Earl Scruggs, I mean, those cats, when they went up to – uh, the Bay Area, they were playing the Avalon Ballroom and, and the Carousel Ballroom, and you know, mm-hmm. and he, you know, and and Bill, uh, you know, so they got to know each other because I think the Questkin Jug Band uh, shared some bills with them, and so um, uh, uh, Bill Keith had made a batch of pot brownies and uh, was driving back <laughs> through Texas and uh, stopped off at Earl Scruggs's house, and his wife was there, and. Um, and Earl was talking about <laughs> playing the uh, the Avalon uh, up in Bay Area, and he said, you know, there's you know there's all this pot smoke in the air, and it was just you know not necessarily turning him off, but he's like, I just don't do that stuff anymore. And Bill's like, well, you know, you don't have to smoke it; you can eat it. You know, I, I have some brownies in the car, and uh, and and so Earl was like, wow, this is you know interesting. So you know, Bill brought them in and he ingested a brownie just to show him that he was going to, you know, didn't freak out or anything. And, uh, and Earl, so Earl ate a brownie and, um, uh, and then about a half hour later, he's yelled, talks, I forget his wife's name now, but he called for his wife and he said, the TV's out, the TV's out of color. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what's going on here. And, and, and his wife said, but, but Earl, the, the commercials, the commercials in black and white. <laughs> so it was just yeah. this million. I mean, you know, Rick, it was just like this, like very. I'm not saying it was innocent, but it was in some ways. And you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your experiences uh, with legal psychedelics. Hmm. Legal psychedelics. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when you talk about um, the, uh, there was a very, uh, there was a period of time where, especially when the government was doing uh, these tests, these experiments about taking blood samples. I mean, this, this wraps into the Kesey thing. You know, Kesey was an aide at the VA, but they were having this experimental uh, situation where they were giving these guys, uh, they didn't know exactly what they were getting, but it turns out it was pills of, uh, capsules of LSD and mm-hmm. uh, but in very controlled settings uh, and uh, and and you could also at that time or around that time go to places like the League for Internal Freedom uh, in San Francisco and, and buy similar to medicinal marijuana today but you could go and buy uh, legal LSD and it was the most pure stuff it was coming out of Sandoz it was coming out of you know, Europe Sweden Switzerland and you know um so everybody, and then ultimately at a time when you go back, you were talking 66, but you go back to 65, that was the Watts acid tests. And basically, 
Um, LSD was going to become, the writing was on the wall that it was going to become illegal uh, later that year. But it was prevalent in all scenes, and I'm just wondering about uh, your experiences with it. Well, I took it, let's see, it would have been 60, 1964, lived above me that was a, a college professor, and he had arranged to get some, and my girlfriend and I took it took a full dose one day wow and it was it was great it, it really <laughs> it uh sort of turned my life around in the in my the way i looked at things and you know i always realized that the way i might be looking at something there was another way of looking at it and that's what uh, that's what LSD showed me. Is there a way for you to talk about the way you viewed this sort of finite society before LSD, and then maybe a revelation that afterwards? That because I mean, it, I understand what you're talking about. It, it altered your consciousness. It all you know, the doors of perception were open for for Cuna. So I mean, yeah, and that was the that was kind of the the gist of it. You know, I just realized that uh, there were different, you know, different ways of seeing the same thing, and that that my version and somebody else's version of anything might be different, and I'd learned to respect that. So it was that simple. It was well articulated. Um, you, you know. Mason, if I remember correctly, I've, I've done a couple interviews with that cat, and he um, kind of was, uh, for lack of a better word, I don't want to say talent scout, but I mean he was going to folk clubs when he worked for the Smothers Brothers and identifying talent, uh, seeing cats that could, you know, both play music and entertain, and you know, did a, a lot of discovery and whatnot, and. Um, uh, I'm curious about how you guys cultivated your friendship and relationship. Well, I knew Mason back in the, you know, kind of his early days as a folk singer. And um, met him, probably, I met him at the Ice House out in Pasadena. Right. It would have been, uh, you know, when we were doing our Hearts and Flowers thing. And then uh, in 1969, I was musical director for Jennifer Warnes. 69? That she was on the map in 69. Yeah. Oh mm -hmm. my God. She had just uh, finished up uh, a run of Hair, the the uh, musical Hair and was going out on the road so I went out with her and uh, she was managed by the same uh, company as Mason Mason had classical gas in 68 that's right and uh, was getting set for a tour in 69 and decided he wanted Jennifer to go along with it so I went around 
I went along with her and then played with him. So that's how we became friends, and he's, we still work together. So the guy, I mean, do you know Don Latarski? Uh, yes. My, he's a dear friend of mine. I love that cat uh-huh. so much, dude. A genius cat. I've done a couple of Facebook Live interviews with him, but I mean, it's like this, like really interesting. So, what was your, what was your role with with Jennifer? You, I forget what you just said there. You you were doing what for her? Well, I was her musical director. Okay. Which meant when the t- <laughs> when the two of us played, I played guitar for. Her. And uh, if we went in and expanded the group, then I'd write charts for the musicians and and uh, like that. If we did a radio show or a TV show, something like that. And then, so you met met, and then you met Mason at the at the Ice House. But basically. Um, you know, at that point, you guys started to go on a double bit. Mason was like, you know, I like I like the way you accompany her, and I want you playing guitar on this as well. Yeah, I mean, we were all out there, so it was silly not to join in. I mean, you know, I'm curious about like your the Mason is so. Um, uh, well, he's just really in the clouds, you know, he's just a beautiful cat and he's just always riffing and sharp and funny. Um, and he, he said to me that, and I want you to just, you know, riff on this. He goes, you know, there, he goes, my friend Ken Kesey always used to say, it's, it's easy for anybody to be, um, uh, clever. Uh, but what, what really makes somebody special is if you can be magical and, um, you know, he said the two greatest people that he met in his life were Pete Seeger and Ken Kesey because they accepted all of humanity, warts and all, and, uh, in fact, advocated for everyone and a very inclusive environment in different ways, obviously. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the, the magic of, of Mason Williams and, and in your mind, what made him, uh, everyone just says, Oh yeah, classical gas, because that's the, you know, most popular thing that he's known for, but he was a tremendous writer, uh, and a tremendous, I mean, he wrote for the Smothers brothers and he had all this cross collaboration going on. And I, and I just, I wonder when you look, when you, the fact that you still work, what do you still get off about working with him today? What, what is his, what is his genius? Well, Mason is just a visionary, and he's he's somebody that puts everything down in writing or or picture or something, and uh, then gets back to it twenty years later. <laughs> and you know, where most of us have long forgotten. He'll pull out something and say, well, I remember this from back in 1970, and uh, I think it's a good idea. So, so, uh, but uh, Mason, Mason's a visionary, and he's a, he uh, under, understands people, too. So that was, you know, his 
affection for Ken and and uh, Pete Seeger too. You know that was. Did you know? Did you get to meet Seeger at all? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about Seeger? I mean, Seeger, man, that guy, boy, man, I, 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 I mean, those are the musical heroes that we desperately need. Um. You know, in our society, yeah, that's true. you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, that guy was on the street corner with a, you know, fire in a, in a garbage can s- singing about workers' rights. I mean, it just, I mean, I guess, was there an element at all in your performing with Mason of social activism at all? I just, I'm, I'm not, you know, fully ensconced in his, or even in your music. I mean, was there, uh, the, was it more than just music? Was it about getting people to think about their role in society and as a, their civic duty? Well, over the years, it certainly has come to that. You know, we did a lot of benefits, and and there was always a a, a political bent to any of the groups I played with, and. Uh, Kind of goes with who you are and and you know what you're doing. Uh, Yo-Yo Man, uh, you were in Nashville. I mean, you did you were you in Nashville when you when you recorded that album or that song? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did that work? Because you were you know marinating in you know Southern California. Well, I had uh, I had a friend. Um, I'm trying to think of my good friend's name. That's all right. Ken Mansfield. Mansfield was, a, was had been with us at in Hearts and Flowers as a uh, kind of a backdoor manager, and uh, you know we stayed friends. And in uh, seventy must have been seventy two. He uh, took me down to Nashville, and we cut we cut that uh, Kuna Nashville back then. It was just a, a treasure trove of great musicians, and uh... oh, sorry. Still there? I sure am. Yeah, no, I mean, oh. yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it, it's, it's, it, they, they affectionately um, refer to it now as Nash Vegas. It's gotten kind right. of blown up, but this is like, um, I can't even imagine the outlaws because there were real outlaws out there. I mean, you know, Waylon, Willie, I mean, these guys were just, I mean, this was the real deal. I mean, today they dress up the guys to look like cowboys, but back then they really were cowboys. Well, they, they, you know, Waylon wasn't a cowboy and Willie wasn't, but they came pretty damn close. Wait, hold on. This is interesting. You, 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 you I'm not saying, I'm not challenging you, but you don't think they were? Uh, I mean, not in the sense of like playing actors in country western films or spaghetti westerns, but I mean like as opposed to like, what was coming through them, uh, you know, uh, you know, in, in their, 
authenticity as a a rugged pioneer as opposed to today when you have people that are propped up to look like something but they don't they're not really what they are do you know what i'm saying i mean you have you have cat you have pop stars today that can't even perform live rick they don't even have yeah. the chops to perform live the lack of authenticity is dangerous for yeah. our society because if you if, if people i mean i don't need to tell you this but i mean i guess that's the point i mean I mean, maybe Waylon didn't have a farm or he wasn't, you know, a rancher or, you know, a a true cowboy, but he was singing from true life experience, just like the Blues Cats were singing about really dark and heavy times and or the Tin Pan Alley Cats and all that stuff. It was very authentic. And today it's like somebody looks a certain way and has a certain amount of Twitter followers or whatever. Uh. Uh, they can get into the studio and say, oh, how did I sound? The engineer said, well, terrible. Come up. We'll fix it. Yeah. <laughs> that's ridiculous. I mean, that's where we're at, you know? Yeah. Well, they were, you know, Waylon was a great, just a great singer and a, you know, a great writer. And uh, he he lived the life he lived for sure. <laughs> I just want to tell you, this is one of the most inspiring lineups on CUNA Tunes, 1974. Now, this was cut in Nashville, you're saying, or was it also cut in Los Angeles, too? Um, let me think. I think a couple, one or two songs were cut in Los Angeles. Because this is a smorgasbord of... Uh, it, it makes sense, because... You know, you have uh, uh, the late, great John Guerin and Larry Carlton on a couple of tracks. And then, and Joe Osborne, and those are the L.A. Cats. And then you have Briggs and Kerrigan and Reggie Young, and those are the Nashville Cats. So you definitely did this. Was the, Let me ask you, I am obsessed, and, and my first book came out, and I'll, I'd like to send it to you, you know, and uh, get your hands around it because um, – you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with the, before interconnection, full interconnection. Uh, we had all this regional sounds, all this regional music, uh, and uh, clearly you went to Nashville to get a certain sound as opposed to the Southern California sound. Is that? Can you say that there were definitive regional sounds, the regional rhythms everywhere? But I'm, you know, was there a Nashville sound? Is that one reason that Mansfield? Oh yeah, loved? very much. So. And what? How did it differentiate itself from, let's say, Appalachian country music or music country music that was or folk, bluegrass jug band music that was being made in California? Was it the rhythm? I mean, what was what made it regional? Well, out there, it's just uh, you know, it's traditional. Uh, traditional music so that's where a lot of the uh, musicians started with it and uh, just grew up with it and uh, you know whether it's blues or or some of the country you know the old-time country stuff in country records and uh, just got a an organization together that where you know you'd go in and they'd do three songs in three hours, and you'd you know you'd be done when you came out of the studio. And they prided themselves on that. 
whereas in L.A., you'd go in for three days and not get anything. <laughs> but were the budgets as voluminous as they got? I mean, because in the mid-'70s, I mean, that's when Steely Dan was getting half a million dollars. for the, I mean, these guys were just sitting in the studios for weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah, the... I can't remember what that album cost of mine. I think it was maybe fifteen thousand or maybe twenty thousand bucks, something like that. Um, so let's just where the nit meets the grit here. Um, I'm looking here at uh, this insane group of characters. Byron Burline, Hal Blaine, Dennis Caffey, Ken Kesey, Don Latarski, my dear friend Art Maddox, um, and Rick Cuna in this band. I, I, I'd like you to talk. I mean, Mason was going up. To, now, did you? when was the first time you went up to Eugene to see Ken Kesey? Um, well, let's see. Mason was doing uh, a Christmas show in Eugene, and uh, you know he had been friends with Kesey for a while. Kesey was living out on the coast and in town, and uh, Mason just included Ken in the in the process, and you know they did. They did it like a TV show. The, the whole show was, you know, kind of written like a TV show. And uh, Ken had a major role in it, and uh, I guess everybody did. But that was my first experience with Ken. So you didn't, I mean, the one of the revelatory things for me, just talking to some of the remaining original Mary Pranksters is that Kesey was, in fact, a... Uh, he was very much wanting to be an actor, but uh, Paul Newman, with his blue eyes, beat him out. And so he had gone down to L.A. originally before going back to, be, to become a writer, and uh, you didn't know him in L.A. at that time. No, I didn't. So this is what Mason told me in our second interview. He said... Um, I had a place up in Oak Ridge, and Ken lived in Pleasant Hill. I knew about him from books, and I had read his books. I found out where he lived, and one day I stopped by just to introduce myself. We sat outside, and he had a parrot who was chewing wood off the side of his house. We had a couple of swigs of whiskey, and I told him in the, to in the river show that I'm doing, since I play guitar and it's mic'd, I'm sort of stuck behind the microphone. What I need is somebody who could be more like an actor, someone who could be an, on stage, move around, and have some motion. Also, I needed comedy bits that I could engineer for you to do. Being a writer, I mean, it seemed like it was in his wheelhouse. But, I mean, he so uh, Mason was playing guitar. But were, I mean, can you talk about your role? I mean, were you were you playing improvisational leads, or what were you doing in that in this band in the River Show? Well, in the River Show, that was... I'm uh, sorry, because you were talking about a Christmas special. And that was Right. So well, you were basically... They, I mean, that, is they that, were both going on at the same time. So I just want to be clear. Like, the Christmas show uh, was basically you were playing the Christmas songbook, right? Is that fair to say? You were just 
kind of role? Yeah, yeah. It was a, an extended version of the Christmas songbook. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Ken was part of that, was part of those shows. Now, what, okay, we, so we this did, is important. We that did three or four of them back in the, when, in the 80s, I guess. Where did where were the where were the performances held? Like the Holt Center or like where student where were they going on? Well, in Eugene, there at the Hawk Center, but we also played up in Salem. Um, also played up in Portland. Unbelievable! This is revelatory, Kuna. I mean, so so so. Can you talk? Was, was, did Keezy dress up as Santa Claus? Did he dress up as Santa? Well, like, I mean, he dressed up as Santa. Say again? And then, uh, I, did he? Didn't I'm sorry. Did, I, did, I missed that. Did he dress up as Santa Claus or or? Yes. Not? Okay. So and then what? And and what was? What do you remember about him adding to that Christmas special before before the River Show? Well, one the first show, uh, where was it? Uh, it may have been the Portland show that that uh, Keezy dressed up like uh, Santa and came out and asked the crowd for money <laughs> for homeless. Whoa. And Whoa. he had some college kids come down and they got, I don't know, they got a couple of, 300 or 400 bucks or more and Keezy took it and went into the homeless section of town and gave it away you were witness to this yeah <laughs> so like was being such a improvisational actor that he was it was this something that was planned in advance, or did he just riff it off the cuff? No, he planned it in, in advance. It, it was uh, part of the, you know, part of the deal. It was part of the show. So, and then he invited, was the whole band with him when he went into the, uh, into the home? Nope. He had a cameraman with a TV camera follow him down. It was a television station, or was it just a regular cat with a, t with a camera? Well, I, I'm a little fuzzy. But you, I guess the point is that maybe he would want to put some, some sort of public spotlight on it. I'm wondering if it was somebody who from the TV station. But um, but you actually went with him into this area with the homeless and he and what? No, we were still doing the show. So We he, were doing the show. He, in the, in the interim of the show, in the intermission, he came out and said, let's all give up some money for the homeless in town. And uh, people grumbled and smiled and applauded and, you know, just went through all this emotion. And then he had these kids going up and down the aisle collecting money, and they gave it to him. And while we were back on stage playing the second half of the show, he was out giving it away. Oh, man. Rick Cuno, you made my, my week, man. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard of my... I mean, people were 
it's that it's that Keynesian philosophy of of saying, well, we all know Christmas is this gluttonous holiday when everybody receives presents, material stuff, but yet there are people amongst us that have nothing. So, you know, let's show some compassion and give to the homeless. But you said that there was quite a mixed reaction in the crowd. I mean, they had already paid a ticket to come see the show, and here they're asking Kesey, even though he was an iconic figure in that um, state, up the, up and down the state. They, I mean, they were grumbling, you said? There was a mixed emotions. Well, the, it was a total mix of emotions. And he he actually pulled it together. And uh, Did you remember what he money. said? Did, did he appeal? To, did, I mean, I, you don't want to bloviate, but did, did he... Did, was there a way that he appealed to people to sort of have them at least, maybe they'd be grumbling under it, but they came around recognizing that he was doing it in the right for the right reasons? Well, I think everybody realized that, and that's why they were grumbling. <laughs> you know? I dig, I dig. Um, and, uh, you know, he had a Santa costume on that was a little ragged, you know. It was, it was a, a raggedy ragged... costume. Ragged Santa. Ragged Santa. Yeah. And it was a, it was a, it was quite an experience. Uh, I think it kept us from playing Portland the next year. Wow. The, uh, founding fathers of the symphony weren't gonna. They were furious that about that. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, uh, do you, uh, is this about like 1983, or do we have a year on this? Uh, what out there? What, 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 do you have any idea of the year that it might have been? Well, it was in the 80s someplace, I think. Sure, sure. Maybe late 80s. Um, so, uh, that was these were traditional Christmas concerts that Mason would put on, but time and rivers flowing, when did... Um, how did how did he did he approach you and say I want you to be part of this? How how did he fill in the in the different cats like Latarsky and and Blaine and, and and people like that? I mean that that is I mean that's amazing. Well, that was just uh, it was a part of. Let's where did time and rivers flowing start? I'm trying to remember when Mason came up with the idea for the album. Um, well, I can't. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, more to the point, uh, how did you get, um, <coughs> had you been working musically with him, with the Smothers Brothers going way back? Or, I mean, or actually, no, I'm sorry, you were with him in the late 60s with Warrens. So your relationship yeah. goes way back. Um, yeah, and then, uh, you know, I've played with him ever since. Um, that is so beautiful to hear. Um, were you living in, in, you were still living in L.A., right? I mean, so, you, yeah. you, so how did that work? I mean, he, he'd get a budget together and you'd go up and stay there for a, a few weeks and go yeah, on tour? Yeah, I'd go up and stay at uh, his place or somebody else's and, uh, you know, hopefully in the summer so I could fish. Oh, I did. Cuna loves to fish. I got to go out fishing yeah. with you, man. <laughs> so, so, so you go up there in the summer, um, and what is the, what do you remember when Keezy did come in? What did he 
bring to the table because none of you guys were – I mean, this guy Bill Barrett is a narrator and actor. Um, but um, what is your memories of Kesey? Um well, I remember Mason talking about, for God's sakes, uh, I think Kesey was a pastor of some sort. I can't really remember, but mm-hmm. what was your memory of him and how did he take t- of time and rivers flowing to the next level? Because I think you guys might have actually gone across the country with that, that gig. Um, yes, I was not with the group that, that uh, toured that. I don't know if it actually went across the country, but it, you know, it. it we played it out in. Uh, we played it out in Denver. And, yeah, Colorado. That's right. That's what it is. In uh, places like that, I remember. And and Kesey was just would come out and tell a story. You know, he'd come out and tell a story. What was the in your mind, uh, you know, who are the who are two of the greatest? Who are the two greatest people you've ever met in your life? Oh, geez, that's a rough one. <laughs> and I mean, like going back and referencing Mason when he talked about Seeger and Kesey, because essentially they accepted. I'll just read you the exact thing uh, that he said. Uh, the two people I met in my life who I thought were great men were Pete Seeger and Ken Kesey. Not only were they clever and could write great songs and great books, they were able to embrace all of humanity, warts and all, I guess you might say. All kinds of people would come by Ken's place and visit and talk, and they were welcome. Pete Seeger was always trying to improve the welfare of the common man. It was the broad love of humanity. Who falls into that category for Rick Cuna? Well, geez, I'd I'd have to think about that because those guys certainly did that for me too. But you weren't nearly as close with either of them as Mason was. No, no. So, in your mind, who were you close to that fits into that criteria? Well, good. That's a good question. No, I mean we can pick it up. We can. We're just getting started here. We can pick it up in part two if you want. I mean, you, you, this is really mercurial stuff. I mean, I love getting into this stuff, and and uh, you know, um, you know, you've you've contributed to our cultural heritage in a big way. But you had mentors, and you had people to, that you looked up to, and and I think it's important that those people aren't just remembered, but they're promoted for what they did and why they were inspiring people. Because right now, the only thing that we are going as we enter into this period of of darkness, because um, it's going to get very dark, um, the only thing that will keep us alive and well is spirit. Spirit is the key. Well, that's the truth. It is the truth. And before I let you go, and we've just been cooking here for, and you've been phenomenal for seventy three minutes. Um, what is your what is Rick Kuna's concept of love, and how do you bring love to the world? Right here, my friends. So. <laughs> I don't know if you want to write those questions down. We can pick it up in part two. I mean, we got more to do. <laughs> yeah, I've got to think about that. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be flippant with it. No, no. So let's uh, let's just stay in touch. I mean, do you have a? Let me call you on my. 
do you have an email? Because I just want to make sure I can get you a copy of this 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 transmission this this interview. It's it's epic, and then ultimately, um, that Santa Claus story is going to be in in this book. So I want to make sure that that uh, I get that to you, and so you can look it over, and make sure it's accurate, and everything. Okay, well, I'll give you my email. Let me call you on my... I don't want you to do it over the airwaves uh, where we have people listening all over the world. So I'll, I'll call you on my cell phone right after the uh, interview. But I, I am so honored and humbled. Uh, Latarski's actually... I'm in Tucson, and Latarski's coming down here from Eugene. Uh, he's here right now, so we're going to get together again. But, man, that dude is a freaking wizard, man. He yeah, a he's genius. a great player and great, you know, good engineer. Got it all. Just before I let you go, I mean, um, oh, by the way, also I want to be clear on these tours with with uh, Time and River Slowing. Hal Blaine would play drums live with you guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is so great. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Hal was Hal just loved to play. Oh it, my God, dude! He uh, just loved to play. Yeah, and he was. He was the drummer, boy. He was a great drummer. Well, he could make any any album swing so hard because he was raised by his black brothers playing bebop. You know, he knew how to yeah. do it. And he was the man. And I had a chance to interview him, too. We had a ball, but rest in peace. Anyway, Rick, uh, have yourself a beautiful weekend, man, and uh, I'll call you and get your contact info, and I hope you had a good time. Okay. It was, it was my pleasure, Jake. Hey, man. Good hang. Talk to you soon. Yeah. You betcha. All right, later, Bye. bro. Bye. Adding to the lineage of Ken Kesey, among other things, that's it for the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll be back on Power Talk. Until then, peace.